Outrocast. Can I start this off with a compliment? Yes, I love sure. that start. Big fan of what you both do. Um, ah, right. Put, Thank you. Putting that out there because, you know, it started with watching the state and then watching every project that had a member of the state in that. But we're not here to talk about the state. We're here to talk about Outpost. Yes. Um, but for the record, that's how it started with me, too. When I met him, I was like, oh, my God, it's a guy from the state. <laughs> it's, I was it, very excited about that. I was like, it's a dude from Wet Hot. I tell you, it's got me a lot of mileage, Darren. Um, so I, I'm appreciative. <laughs> but I'd have to imagine that the guy from the state ended with super bad once people like yeah you know the guy from yeah. super bad from that scene That's right. that when it kind of ended it, it did and it's mainly it's always you know that guy which is okay like you're that guy and i'm like yeah yeah i'm that guy by the way being yeah. that guy it's pretty no it's complaints. like it's a, it's it's a good it's a good career path yeah. i want to be that guy that sounds good you are that guy yeah well Beth, before I ask you a bunch of questions about yourself, Joe, there's one mystery I've never been able to figure out. And yeah. with your last name, is there a space after the L-O or not? Because half the places get it one way, half yeah. the other. There is. There is. I complicated my life by spelling my last name correctly, which is the space. So that's often made uh, many people call me Jolo, which is um, hard to hard to swallow um and uh and completely messed many things up but you know it's my own it's my own accord there you go call. so with our son i uh, i put it together and i capitalized the t yeah, yeah well that's okay but i didn't tell him i did that but i do it because it right. makes it easier because sometimes when you check in for something his name will be under t as yeah. opposed to l Anyway, yeah, it's, it's, it's like when you see David Lee Roth in the record store. Do you look under the L or the R? I, I think the correct answer is the exactly. R, but he's confused the whole thing. So exactly. this <laughs> is not the David Lee Roth interview. However, this is the Beth and Joe interview. And Beth, Outpost, how much of the character that you play is there in Beth the human being? Very little in the sense that I don't have the PTSD uh, element. Um, but I do have that thing that a lot of women do, which is they keep a lot of things bottled inside and they, they have like a nice sweet face on and then sort of uh, that anxiety can sort of erupt in different ways. So I can relate to that sort of, of a character in that way. And I think I do have access to my own darkness. So maybe there's, there's a little bit of that, you know? But, you mean um, professional actress. Being a professional actress is a dark place to be right now. It's very dark. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I get what you're saying right there, that you can channel things as needed, but also turn them off as needed and be a normal Beth. That's correct. You know, Beth also didn't know how to chop wood. So that she had very, very similar to the character of Kate in the movie. Very cathartic experience chopping yeah. wood. I highly recommend it. It's really <laughs> enjoyable. Like I get it. I get it now. Satisfying. It's satisfying. Wow. Wielding an axe is satisfying. Have you ever gone to one of those axe throwing courses or, you know, uh, team they building have, events? Yeah, no, but they have bars now that are like, you can go drink and throw axes. I almost went one day and I didn't go, but I, I wanted to for this movie, but I wound up going to Griffith Park and mm. getting some wood and uh, creeping people out who are picnicking <laughs> around me as I'm like trying to learn how to chop wood. Yeah. Um, but it was worth it You're... because it, it was helpful to learn yeah. from someone who knew how to do it. A friend of mine knew how to do it. So he came out with me. You had someone with you. Yes. yes. To, yes. Be, to be clear, 
she didn't go out by herself with an axe and wood and just hang out by people with picnic right. blankets. Right, right. That's true. But I sort of did. <laughs> right. We do find that about 15% of comedic actors and actresses actually come from carpenter backgrounds these days. That it's not just Harrison Ford, Adam Carolla, Nick Offerman. Right. You never know who before they made it was that. Are you allowed to say no. who trained you that that was a friend? Is it anyone we would know? Um, no, it's my friend Todd, but. Oh, by the way, does anyone not like a person named Todd? Isn't Todd the most likable? Well, here's what I'll say. Another thing about the name Todd, it is also my stepbrother's name, but uh, is that everyone by the name of Todd is between the ages of 44 and 51. Except Todd Rundgren. Except for yeah, yeah. that, yes. But he's an, he's an outlier. He's an outlier. He's an outlier. Yeah. But generally yeah. speaking, that yeah. was when the name right. sort of reached it's, its, super its popular. peak. Yeah. yeah. Like you don't meet a lot of Todd's these days. You yeah. don't meet a lot of children named Todd. That's right. That's right. You're right. No. Well, well, Joe, uh, Todd banter aside here, how long had you wanted to direct a film versus Outpost happening? Uh, probably since I was like, you know, uh, 11 or 12. Um, I, you know, I, I was a horror fan before I was a comedy fan. So although understandably this is quite a out of left field or like, surprise for most people. For me, it's kind of a return to what got me interested in filmmaking and a true love of, of the genre that mm -hmm. began with Fangoria Magazine and, um, and Stephen King and all the movies that horror fans loved, you know, playing on cable in the, in the 70s and 80s. So this is quite a natural path, but um, I understand why people are like, what? Come on, Boyle, what's going on? Give us some laughs. <laughs> Hardly. I think that the comedy, uh, the comedy, did I just invent the new genre? I love it. I love hardy. Yeah. Har some hardy. <laughs> I think I that horror. You're onto something. This could be something. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Beth was in the room, so she has a third of the trademark, I think. Uh, fair yes, enough. Yeah. In the room. Some yeah. percentage of this. Yeah. There you go. Well, <laughs> I um, think. What were you going to say? I think it's a big overlap between horror and comedy because yeah. they're two timing-oriented genres. You see people genre hop between the two, obviously not just Jordan Peele, but these days it seems yeah. like you go from comedy to horror, horror to comedy, back and forth and all that. Yeah, well, I think both both genres require very heavy observation of, of human behavior and also uh, warrant immediate reactions whether to the moment or to the beat. So whether it's a laugh or a scream, I mean, they both kind of operate in the same space in that respect. And so I think those that are, are good at one, it, it makes sense that they're good at the other. Although I don't know how funny Carpenter is, John Carpenter or, uh, you know, Cronenberg. Maybe they are very funny. I don't well, know. Well, he put Roddy Rowdy Piper in a movie. So Fair enough. Yes. Humor right there. <laughs> and, that, and that long fight scene was maybe one of the best of all time. Holds up. Keith David. You guys, um, I don't yeah. know who is that. Uh, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper was a, uh, a very uh, famous uh, pro wrestler in the, oh. in the in the in the eighties who was in a movie called They Live okay. by John Carpenter, and, they and was, yeah, supposedly the Beastie Boys when you know they were allowed to be misogynistic and funny and all that. Mm -hmm. Supposedly they were based on Rowdy Roddy Piper because their producer Rick Rubin was a diehard wrestling fan, but at the time you couldn't admit you were a wrestling fan. Maybe oh, I didn't know no, that. I didn't know that either. Okay. That's a good bit of trivia. Fun fact, well, Beth, we're, speak we're both learning today. Comedy <laughs> and all that. Uh, but Beth, were you originally an East Coaster? 
Uh, my, you know, my stepdad was in the military, so I moved around all my life. I went to high school and college in Florida, um, and then I uh, moved to New York for New York City for four years. But I've been out here longer than I've lived anywhere. I've lived in LA for 20 years. So I'm, I'm sort of wow. from everywhere and nowhere. I lived in South Korea for a couple years, and yeah. When did you start to find that all the New York people were moving to LA? I, I'm thinking it was like 2006. Yeah. That's when I moved here. Oh, yeah, Joe, I did not read your Wikipedia. I didn't, yeah. I didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I see that all the comedy and comedy adjacent people started in the mid 2000s, moved to LA, did the podcast things, launched a production company. So all the people that you were probably struggling alongside in 98, 99 are all the showrunners these days. Yeah, I mean, there's a yeah. lot of a lot of great comedic people from New York who are now out here in in LA just yeah well I mean absolutely. like yeah yeah I mean you brought up the state so many of them had moved out here um uh quite a bit before I did and I think now we're pretty much split uh evenly on the coasts there you go and and one more state question before we take it back to outpost I interviewed Sam Calagione from Dogfish Head oh! I love and, Sam. He's the best. Okay. So is it true that the state started around the same time in the same apartment as Dogfish Head? Kind of. Ken Marino of the state was was, was Sam's roommate. And and often um, some members of the state, Tom Lennon, myself, Ben Garant, would hang in that apartment as well. And and uh, I know that I, my, my big claim to fame with Sam is that I sampled his very first keg of beer that he ever made in his apartment um so one of the first uh, the first dogfish head batches uh very very proud it's a big boast for me <laughs> history yeah wow well hey as promised back to outpost here yeah. how long has the film actually been done for so we um we shot it in uh, uh summer of 21 and i think we had our final cut done at the last uh, spring uh, 2022 um, and so it took a while to get some distribution. And so, I, I mean, the whole process was about five years. I think I broke the first draft in the spring of 2018. So this was a long time coming. And certainly the, the main, the biggest challenge was finding that location uh, because we knew, I knew that that was going to be a big part of whether or not this movie There's worked. A picture of the location right here. We here. Go. And um, and of course, you know, uh, the lead uh, actor needed to make that movie work. And Beth did a fantastic job. But, you know, as I'm sure, you know, independent filmmaking is a is a is a just a slog, man. And um, uh, it, we finally got there. We're excited that yeah. people could finally see this thing. Yeah, it's very much a labor of love on, sure. on both of our parts. Absolutely. Yeah. Beth, were you the last person on board or the first person on board? I think the first, well, I think, you know, you had written a couple of scripts before, right? Different scripts. Different scripts. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was, he sort of, we both sort of came to that idea of like, well, let's make something with a much smaller cast with, with less locations. I live here. I can, you know, you could just be like, Hey, are you around for, you know, like yeah, there's, no right. gonna, there's not going to be like a bunch of scheduling conflicts. So yeah. it, it made sense to you to do that. And, um, and I'm so glad we did because it was a project that we got to work on together. I mean, he did the lion's share of everything. We, we, I reverse kind of engineered the, the story because mm -hmm. as Beth was saying, it began with like, all right, we know this is very low budget. We're gonna be financing mm -hmm. um, and, and we're gonna uh, need to find a small cast 
I'll use my friends who are actors and we need some production value. So I'm like, well, what would look amazing for cheap? Well, the top of a mountain would. Um, oh, I didn't really think about the logistics of actually shooting a movie on the top of a mountain. Right. But once, once those kind of elements were in place, then I kind of reverse engineered the story and thought about the type of horror movies that I loved, which were Descents into Madness or Isolation or Paranoia or What's Real, What's Not, and started to just think about what kind of stories may come of a female protagonist in that mm -hmm. environment, you know. And the follow-up question, which is potentially the last question I'd ask for you to, and, and we're, we're going to wind around here. It's a lot of people, when they finish a book, they go, I'm not writing a book ever again. And then other people go, oh, I'm going to sell the next three. Yeah. Now, when you finish a thing that you really helmed from start to finish, does that have you going, oh, oh, yeah, three more of these or, oh, boy, no, thanks. The short answer is three more of these. But I there are certain roles that I took upon as producer and financier that I do not want to have anything to do with anymore. The learning curve was yeah. very steep. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say that. Yeah. yeah. I just I you know, I need I. I yeah, there were some things I learned that you need to really be a bulldog and a pit bull to, to get done. And we got them done, um, but I'd rather kind of stay in the area of writer, director and creative producer than um, one that's cracking the whip with with other, you know, uh, people aspects. that, yeah, aspects of the business. Yeah. Same deal for you, Beth. Uh, you didn't go, well, if you're not doing it, I'm doing that. Um, no, you know, I mean, Similar, I I, we, I had a great experience because I didn't have to deal with all of the things that he was having to deal with. I would I would hear about it, but right. um, no, I mean I think he has a lot of great ideas, especially with horror, and and um, I think you know I would love for us and what's that noise to do more of these types of things. I don't know that we would want to finance it entirely, like <laughs> right. you know, like we had like we did, but um, right. but absolutely, I mean it was yeah. it was invigorating to be able to start and finish a project creatively you know and just it was yeah. it was awesome to be really very much a part of it we were all in it together you know a lot of the cast and crew we all knew a lot of us knew each other you know right. he's a dear friend of joe's from the 90s I, he's been a friend of mine for years so we we were just all very um aligned in, in terms of getting this project done and and um yeah and shooting it was like you know it's like summer camp it was like we were all in this indie filmmaking thing together, you know? Um, so it was inspiring in that way. And, and you know, just to have some control over, over the process. Yeah, so much of it is just like, we did it. You know, we yeah. got a movie done. It's, it's yeah. amazing to me that any, any movie gets done, um, truly. Yeah. And to be able to kind of just have that as an achievement, let alone it being on a mountain at 6,300 feet up in the air, it's, you, you walk away with like, all right, well, I, I know how to do this. And yeah. um, I'm excited to, to do more, maybe not on a mountain. But the, the best use of a mountain since Cliffhanger entered the Just Like Paradise <laughs> video by David Lee Roth. <laughs> and and Fitzcarraldo. Yes. How's your day going so far? Great. Great day. I'm Grocery out visiting shot. LA for the week, which has been lovely. The weather's been really nice. You know, it's great. Now, before we ask about relevant stuff about your career, Curtis, it looks like a Beyonce painting behind you. Um, no, it's Patsy from. <laughs> oh, okay. Absolutely fabulous. Nice. Oh, wow. Our, the little, yeah. Legendary British sitcom. Exactly. Exactly. It looks like an I'm saying, patch. I know, right? Well, it's, yeah, it's her sunglasses. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm staying at a friend's house this week, so it's great. <laughs> you have good taste in friends. And behind you, Tom, <laughs> I see a guitar. 
most of the music that I'm familiar with that you've written is piano based. Do you also write on guitar? Um, you know, I'm the lyricist and that's just there for show. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, we, I mean, I play a little guitar. I play a little guitar, but mostly I do my work on piano or a lot of times when we're writing, I'll do just vocal, do it in a vo voice first. And I've been trying to teach, to, to take some guitar lessons so I can at least talk to Curtis more uh, uh, efficiently about music stuff instead of just going, maybe it should just be a little more this, you know, so. <laughs> right. So I've, I've seen other work of yours and heard other work of yours, but you both came on to my, what's the word? Uh, platform, uh, what's the word? Radar, radar. You came onto my radar directly through Mrs. Maisel. And Mrs. Maisel is a show about comedy, yet when you really think about it, there's a lot of music in that show. There's the yeah. hopefully award-winning, hopefully award-winning industrial song that you guys penned. There's the Shy Baldwin stuff. Did you also did the Shy Baldwin stuff, all of it? Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. Anything that, that's original, we did, yeah. That fascinates me because those Shy Baldwin songs sound like actual hit songs. So I'm curious, and I don't know who the, who the person originally asked this question to is, but who started those songs? Like, do they start with the lyrics? Do they start with the music? Um, you know, it's interesting with, when we, when we did those songs, it's kind of, I mean, we really are true collaborators in a sense of those Shy Baldwin songs. When we got the assignment, it was a very strange assignment that there's like, you know, anywhere between Sam Cooke and Johnny Mathis. We're like, wow, that's a big, big, wide range. So Tom, Tom and I talked a little bit about it. He went away and wrote like three pages of just really fun hooks, just one line, you know, including one less angel or like no one has to know or bottle of pop. And, you know, we, we were, you know, and so then. You know, I took that, he, he wrote that like literally in like probably two and a half hours after our first meeting for that assignment. I went oh, away wow. that weekend and just took all those hooks and I just took my iPad recorder out and sung them into a, a I just like wrote, wrote and sang all those hooks. We got together the next, uh, next day and we went through them and decided, okay, which, which one of these do we like? We picked about five of them and then sort of expanded them together into about a, like a verse and a chorus to kind of, you know, flesh them out. Wow. That's how you remember it as well, Tom? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is always the way we work. It's always passing it back and forth. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of blackmail material on our phones. Um, oh, my God. Singing into them, like, I'll sing back stuff to him, and he'll sing stuff back to me. And uh, yeah. it's it's about finding the stuff that, with Shy Baldwin in particular, it was a lot about finding what felt effortless. So it, we, yeah. wanted it to, we wanted it to feel like the songs always existed. Um, and so you just... And that takes a lot of work. So we would keep singing these things back and forth to each other until it just felt like it just was there, like in the air. Yeah, 100%. That's exactly the right way I put it too, Sean. We just really went back and forth with that kind of to do that. And one of our favorite moments, speaking of going back to what your original question thought was, we, when we went in to record Bottle of Pop with the Silver Bells, their Shy Baldwin's backup group, mm -hmm. uh, the one of the singers uh, you know, came up to us and said, oh my God, I spent all weekend on YouTube trying to find this, but we can't find the song. I'm like, well, you're not going to find it because you, because it doesn't exist yet. You're singing it for the first time. You know, so it was a real, it was a fun little treat that people think like you did, that they've always existed. And that's, that's kind of, you know, Tom always says it really well. It's like, we've done our job right. If it sounds like we haven't done anything at all, it's basically like it's always existed and that we are living in the world. You know, you're not thinking about this stuff as new songwriting because we want to fit in we want to, you know, with all the other needle drops that Maisel does, we want to feel part of that world. And 
to bring up a little Alan, Alan Menken, Howard Ashman uh, <laughs> reference there. We want to feel part of that world, you know, that we're that we're authentic in that. It reminds me in a good way. Did you ever see the movie Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story? Yes. Have you seen it? I have that not. Course? I have not it's, seen it. Picture your typical Judd Apatow humor uh -huh. lampooning the Ray and Walk the Line biographies with the naked gun kind of slapstick humor. So the music's fantastic. <laughs> the music's yeah. totally serious and real. And you go, well, that's his early 60s R&B song. And that's his, you know, that's his disco foray, et cetera. And the music, again, is serious. But the jokes are just everywhere in that film. It reminds me of that where it's authentic, the music that you did for Maisel. Now, for every one song we hear on or here in here in an episode, I'm, I'm getting my prepositions mixed up it's all good <laughs> how many did you write to get there is it like a one in six it's really i mean it, it does it depends on what it is um earlier you know season three some of the shy baldwin stuff um we we would write probably three or four for each one that got in um one of the hardest ones that we did was in season four which we did for the harry belafonte song that mm -hmm. was difficult because we were writing for an actual person that really existed. And, and we kept asking, why aren't we just using an actual Harry Belafonte song? Um, so we wrote many, probably seven or eight or nine songs, different versions of that, right, Tom? Absolutely, yeah. I was trying to find the thread the needle until until Amy gave us this amazing note when she said, oh, no, no, no it's not one of his hit songs. It's a, it's, a, it's a song he's written as a gift to Shy Baldwin for his wedding. And once we kind of oh okay we get it this is this is a best man's toast and that opened up the door but we have if you ever need like uh more uh fake uh, harry belafonte songs just just call us up because we've got a trunk we've got a trunk full of them <laughs> this is true um we'll do the harry belafonte musical but no i mean uh and then i think you know then on the flip side of that um you know this last season only for time reasons, Amy, you know, when we got the assignment for the trash musical and actually all the songs in that episode, episode 504, there's three musicals in that episode, including the trash one. Yeah. Um, it was really only about three weeks between the assignment and then when we recorded. So we didn't have time to write a lot of songs, um, although we did. There was probably of those songs uh, of the six songs in that episode, we we had to go back and rewrite like I mean, completely come up with new versions for two of them. Is that right, Tom, or one of them? One or two. We, I mean, this wasn't time. And luckily, I think at that point we had such a shorthand with Amy and Dan. We kind of knew what they wanted, and we could kind of come in, hopefully, you know, uh, with with one big swing and get what they wanted. And we mostly did. I think we were probably about eighty percent there with our first ideas, which is great. Thank the Lord. <laughs> yes, thank the Lord. Because we would have been like, there was, not there was no time. There was no time. Wow. Uh, because it's one of those things where you realize as you get older that the music that sounds really simple to you is actually the most complex music, but you've just heard it so many times that and sung it so many times that you just, it doesn't even seem prog, but it is. Now, the right. crash, spectacular, industrial, musical thing, I can't imagine how much work that was. Any idea what the scripts that they got looked like? Uh, the actors on that show, for example, was it written and then they got it in the scripts or did their scripts just go eight minutes of music here? <laughs> well, the thing is, is that the scripts are written very late. So we're working in collaboration with Amy during the process. And so the songs were done and put into the script before the actor. So like we, 
literally delivered it to the table read. Um, and, yeah. and that was the first moment everything came together. And so it, it, it truly is a collaboration with Amy as she's writing the script. We got to talk through jokes. I mean, working through everything. And so uh, that's the joy of working on that show is that they care so much about the music and they want it to be integral to the script. So that's never... Also, I think they're late with writing their scripts, let's be honest. And so everything's come together as we're yeah. working and we get to have yeah. a say in what those things will be. Well, aside from having to talk to me, is your day going fine so far? <laughs> Day's going good. I am in um, Phoenix, or not Phoenix right now. Well, near Phoenix, Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, we're gonna play a show tonight, so yeah. <laughs> You are on tour supporting the record. Now, when somebody sees you live these days, how much of the new record do they get versus other material? Uh, honestly, this is a tour around entirely the new record. So they get the whole thing. <laughs> they get the whole record. And yeah. I love your music. Now, now I'm putting that out there right, right there and forward. And I first found out about you through just watching Facebook videos of you playing improvised stuff. So when I saw that there was a covered album coming out, it's, it's like, oh, cool, that too. Now, for you to record an album like this, how many songs did you actually demo or write for us to get the final track listing? Uh, everything. Um, I mean, I feel like this, this album came out of me doing a bunch of pedal demos. Um, over quarantine, I just had a lot of time to actually sit down and be creative and write. And mm -hmm. I just kind of bunkered down and uh, wrote out the whole record and entirety. Like before we went to the studio, the whole thing was demoed. Maybe aside from the piano thing, the piano thing I kind of improvised um, in the middle of the recording process because I thought we needed transition. So yeah, a lot of it was planned out, but you know, things never go according to plan. <laughs> Right. That was actually going to be one of my questions. With demoing, does the lead part come first or does it get developed later on? For me, I usually start with guitar and I build out like the, the lead guitars and then all the backing stuff. Like um, there's some textural ambient things and there's some like tremolo picking parts and some like additional mm -hmm. chuggy chords to reinforce the main part. Uh, that's all added afterwards. But everything is pretty much planned out before I hit the studio, all parts recorded. And as you mentioned, some of it came out of tone or pedal demos. So in your case, does the tone factor into the composition? Uh, you said it did the tone? Yeah, because some, okay, giving a random example, the band Rancid is a punk band where everything's electric, yet Tim Armstrong writes everything on an acoustic guitar. And I find that sometimes you find with harder rock bands, they don't write on anything but acoustic. So in your case, does the tone factor into the composition? Oh, it's 100% integrated and I'm thinking about it concurrently with the melody. If anything, the melody is informed by the tone. Um, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the songs on this record were inspired by pedal demos. So in these demos, I'm not trying to juxtapose a melody over a sound and have it be forced. Like mm -hmm. when I demo a piece of gear, I'm really trying to think like, how can I write a melody to really let the, the sound of it shine and really like showcase what the pedal can do. Um, and I like that because it ends up making me write a lot differently. It's mm. almost like being given a new color and you know what you draw with 
black might be way different than what you end up drawing with red. So you never know. Ouch. And sometimes the song is instrumental. Sometimes it has you singing. Is mm -hmm. that a thing that's decided towards the end after the riff and the tone have been figured out? Um, sometimes I'm like, definitely, uh, I write the whole song instrumentally first and I'm like, oh, it's missing something. I hear a vocal line. But then sometimes I feel like I haven't really done this with Covet, but with my personal stuff, I've written like a catchy vocal line and then I write guitars around it. Outro cast. Hey, yo, check one, two. This is Flavor Flav, and I don't disappear fast. Because right now, you are watching the Paltrow cast. Outro cast.